Originally a prime draw for adventurous motorists, dinosaur-themed roadside attractions once ruled the day. Some, like Dinosaur Park in South Dakota, persevered, while others, like today's focal point Dinosaur World in Arkansas, faded away into obscurity. Today on The Abandoned Carousel, the history of the American freeway, the rise and fall of the roadside attraction, the sculptures of one Emmett Sullivan, and the long-lingering dinosaurs once known as the Land of Kong. As I've discussed so often on this podcast, many smaller theme parks and roadside attractions in the United States harken back to the days when the roads in the United States were much less established. In particular, some of the attractions I'll be talking about today, like Mount Rushmore and Dinosaur Park, were both products of the late 1930s, well before the interstate highway system. To really center ourselves on today's episode, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the history of roads in the United States before we talk about today's theme park, Dinosaur World. So in the beginning of the 20th century, the nation primarily had dirt auto trails, and these were barely marked at all. They were marked mostly by colored bands on telephone poles to help orient travelers, or maybe they were marked on barns or rocks or literally any surface that was facing the road. And it's it's really hard to think about now when we pretty much take roads for granted, but back then, roads were more or less terrible. They basically turned to impassable knee-deep mud after rains or floods, and then they became scored with huge ruts and furrows as everything dried out that made any cart or car ride bone-shakingly uncomfortable. The railway was the primary mode for interstate travel, with roadways being of mostly local and rural interest. Think about your average country dirt back road that you might have traveled, and you might have the sense of it. For long-distance travel, a person was far more likely to choose the railroad because it actually did the job. There was chatter and growing support for a set of improved interstate roadways, but in the early 20th century, Congress wasn't yet interested in providing federal funding for such projects. Nice roads were reportedly considered luxuries. Auto trails, then, were run by local trail associations. These were just a small organization, local organization, that united some local roads together of various qualities and differing signages. And of course, I was further surprised when I was researching this to learn that many of these roads were not laid out along the quickest route or the route that made the most geographic sense. No, apparently the businesses and towns along the routes paid dues to the trail associations, which then published trail guides and promoted the use of their routes. Therefore, it was to the benefit of pretty much everyone except the traveler to have routes be quite indirect. A man named Carl Fisher remembered for little things like the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and major development of the city of Miami Beach has been credited with the conception and development of the literally groundbreaking idea called the Lincoln Highway. In 1912, he began promoting a dream a modern transcontinental highway to connect New York and San Francisco. Let's build it before we're too old to enjoy it, he told his friends, people like Theodore Roosevelt, Thomas Edison, and Woodrow Wilson. It was still a trail association, but it was on a grand scale. Early funding for the project came from private investors and businesses before the government was interested. 
The progress of the Lincoln Highway was widely reported throughout newspapers, with each major or minor monetary contribution publicized and promoted, therefore improving public opinion regarding public roadway projects in general. Convoys were sent across the country to scout the route, visit the towns, and generally promote the project. The U.S. Army actually had a well-publicized contribution called the Transcontinental Motor Convoy in 1919. It took them two months to travel across the country due to broken bridges and muddy crossings which stranded vehicles. These difficulties were actually used to show the need for better interstate highways, and they actually helped build popular support on both federal and local levels for projects like this. The Lincoln Highway also encouraged or required high-quality paved roadbeds along its routes. Remember, as I told you, most of the roads were just dirt. So this was groundbreaking, and many additional associations built or improved roadway systems under this trail association model, often in the very popular transcontinental direction. By the mid-1920s, there were over 250 named routes, things like the Pikes Peak Ocean-to-Ocean Highway, the 3C Highway, the Dixie Highway, and so on. The increase in named roads and the increase in automobile traffic led to a rise in problems. Some routes went through dues-paying cities instead of going through the best route for drivers, such as the Arrowhead Trail. This was favored back in the day by the state of Utah. It kept drivers bound for Los Angeles in Utah for hundreds of desolate miles, much longer than the competing Lincoln Highway. Confusion among drivers over which route to take was common, and it was almost encouraged by cross-promotion from different trail booster associations. Additionally, many routes overlapped, which caused further confusion among drivers. And you have to remember, this was in a day where everyone was going off of paper booklets that they'd gotten from the trail associations. This was a very different time. Ultimately, of course, as might be expected, it seemed as though the association model meant fewer people were willing to take responsibility for things like road conditions, signage, and improvements, which meant that roads weren't really maintained that well. The common method for directions at the time referred to landmarks. Turn after the red barn, take the right-hand fork after the fallen log, and so on. Well, this was just confusing. Much as I might prefer to give directions like this today, I still acknowledge that this isn't the best way to give directions. Any slight change in the environment, and drivers would be hopelessly lost. What happens if that fallen log gets cleaned up? What happens if that barn gets painted green? As State Highway Engineer Arthur Hurst remarked to a National Road Congress in 1918, quote, The ordinary trail promoter has seemingly considered that plenty of wind and a few barrels of paint are all that is required to build and maintain a 2,000-mile trail, end quote. A 1918 map shows the mind-boggling number of short trails that drivers were told to use. And of course, I will link this in the show notes, which you can find for this episode at theabandonedcarousel.com backslash 28. In 1918, Wisconsin led the way to a more logical process, which is still in use today, a uniform road numbering system. Signs were posted everywhere along routes, with the plan being, quote, to be rather profuse with these road markers, end quote, as travelers would flourish with the, quote, kindly reminder that he is still on the right road, end quote. 
No longer in Wisconsin, then, would travelers be confused. Now a direction could be something like, take road number 12 until you meet road number 21 and then take a right. That's much more clear, particularly in the Midwest's snowy weather, which I speak to you from today. However, names lingered in prominence for another decade or so, even in those states like Wisconsin and Iowa that had early adopted numbering systems. By the early 1920s, however, the governments had gotten involved with the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials, AASHO. The number of vehicles on the road had gone from 0.5 million in 1910 to almost 10 million by 1920 and over 26 million by 1930. The government, through a series of committees and meetings, developed what would eventually be called the U.S. Numbered Highway System, or in casual parlance, U.S. routes or U.S. highways. The trail associations obviously kicked up a fuss. Why not substitute, quote, arithmetic for history, mathematics for romance, end quote, said one Ernest McGaffey of the Automobile Club of Southern California, who at the time advised motorists to always pack a tent, shovel, and axe when driving. But in the end, logic won out. On November 11th, 1926, all of the old national road trails were officially renumbered into the U.S. National Highway System. The in-depth history of the change from names to numbers is actually quite fascinating, and there's a great article about it written by Richard Weingroff, and it's called From Names to Numbers, The Origins of the U.S. Numbered Highway System. If you're interested at all in the topic, I encourage you to check it out. The numbered highway system almost immediately rendered the Trail Association's system obsolete. Now there was new, clear, iconic black-and-white shield signage that we still use today, telling drivers where they were and where they were going. It was clear and simple. The federal government also began to maintain and improve the roads in the system. This, then, is the road system in place at the time of the construction of Mount Rushmore and Dinosaur Park. Of course, as I discussed some in my previous episode on the towns called Santa Claus, Even these new roads were still smaller roads, as we would think of them today. They were really only two lanes in most places. Pavement or even good quality road condition was still not the guarantee that we might think of today. As early as 1938, FDR, the 32nd U.S. president, began commissioning studies and reports on potential superhighway corridors, with additional reports and plans coming in over the next decade. The 34th U.S. president was one Dwight D. Eisenhower. Eisenhower was a champion of this proposed interstate highway system that was in process. If you recall, I mentioned the 1919 Transcontinental Army Convoy that was meant to showcase the Lincoln Highway. And what so happens is that a young Lieutenant Eisenhower happened to be a part of that convoy and found the experience incredibly memorable. Combined with his experiences of Germany's Autobahn system in the 1940s, he saw considerable advantage in putting forth policies to construct a true interstate highway system for the U.S. The Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956 became law, obviously, in 1956, and it marked the beginning of the interstate highway system as we think of it today. Through a gasoline tax funding the Highway Trust Fund, the federal government would pay for 90% of the cost of interstate highway construction. 
this gasoline tax is still in place today. Construction began immediately in 1956, and a few roads were grandfathered into the system, such as the Pennsylvania Turnpike, portions of which were actually constructed back in 1940. I won't dwell too much more on the interstate highway system, as I have already covered this some in other episodes. It wasn't until 1992 that the system was actually declared complete, some 35 years after its implementation, and some 23 years longer than it was originally said to take. And of course, although this seems recent, 1992, the mid-90s were still almost 30 years ago. Against this background, I bring you back to the topic at hand. It's time to talk about a man. Of course, we have a guy with every episode, and this episode we're going to start with a guy called Emmett Aloysius Sullivan, born in 1887, back in the Gilded Age. He was originally a cowboy in Montana. After serving in the First World War, Sullivan returned to South Dakota and turned to sculpture. Sullivan, of course, was the guy who did many of the Dinosaur World sculptures. We'll get there. It's a long and winding podcast road today. Before he sculpted Dinosaur World in Arkansas, Sullivan worked on a number of different projects. He's widely noted for being one of the assistant sculptors on Mount Rushmore there in the Black Hills of South Dakota. He's said to have worked closely with the head sculptor, the famous and infamous Gutzon Borglum. Look into this guy if you need an interesting deep dive, for real. It's absolutely beyond the scope of this podcast, but this guy has some stories. There's no payroll record of Sullivan working on the Mount Rushmore project. No obvious newspaper stories, but South Dakota was even less populated at the beginning of the 1900s than it is now when I'm recording in 2020, so it's likely that the two sculptors were at least familiar with one another in passing, if not working together. Sculpting of George Washington on Mount Rushmore began in 1927 and was completed in 1934. The seven-year construction period, of course, was due to the onset of the Great Depression. Subsequent presidential heads were completed in 1936, 1937, and 1939. Sullivan likely didn't participate in all of this, but after his time working on Rushmore, he continued on as a sculptor, but in a slightly smaller scale. His next project was a roadside attraction called Dinosaur Park, located not too far from Mount Rushmore in Rapid City, South Dakota. Against our background of a burgeoning motorist society still light years more retro than our systems today, Emmett Sullivan's Dinosaur Park was commissioned in February of 1936 by the WPA. In case you've forgotten your high school history classes, I will be happy to oblige. The WPA stood for Works Progress Administration, and it was part of FDR's New Deal programs, designed to combat the Great Depression. The goal was to employ the unemployed, ultimately some 3.3 million people at its peak. Jobs were all public works, most planned and sponsored by the local level, states, cities, and counties. There were things like roads and bridges, libraries and post offices, museums and playgrounds and swimming pools and parks. Dinosaur Park was WPA project number 960. Its purpose was to, quote, perpetuate the facts of history, end quote, and to give visitors, quote, a fair idea as to the appearance, size, and characteristics of our earliest known inhabitants, end quote. 
The idea for the park was credited to two people, Dr. C.C. O'Hara and R.L. Bronson. Dr. O'Hara was the retired president of the South Dakota School of Engineering and Mines, a paleontologist fascinated by fossils. Bronson was much less storied, just a secretary at the Rapid City Chamber of Commerce, and he was said to have conceived of the idea after seeing a mechanical dinosaur at the Chicago Century of Progress Expo. Locating a roadside dinosaur attraction here, of course, was to help promote tourism and attract visitors who were driving out to see the massively popular under-construction Mount Rushmore. Rapid City is the major city in the area, even still today. It's the closest town near the monument, about a half an hour away, and tourists would and still do pass through Rapid City off U.S. Route 16. Today, I-90 occupies much of the old U.S. 16 route. In order to get to the site, today the town is called the Gateway to the Black Hills, so it's obvious why they wanted to put a roadside attraction here. And given the popularity of dinosaurs in the area and at the time, it's obvious why they chose dinosaurs as a topic. The designer for the dinosaurs of Dinosaur Park was, of course, sculptor Emmett Sullivan. Up to 25 other people were involved in the construction at the project's peak, and it cost ultimately around $25,000. Construction was not straightforward, which is surprising considering the type of project. It seems kind of simple. But apparently there was a dispute between Sullivan and the WPA, which halted construction in the winter of 1937 to 1938. The dispute, and I cannot make this up, was over the dinosaur's teeth and how they were to be installed. Apparently, Sullivan resigned as project foreman and kept the dinosaur teeth. After some persuading, he gave the teeth to the WPA people and said he'd make the rest of the dinosaur teeth later. But his replacement did not follow directions regarding the teeth installation, and therefore Sullivan refused to make any more teeth. After a few months, the Chamber of Commerce broke the stalemate and hired Sullivan to work for them and complete the project, which subsequently opened in summer of 1938. Each of these dinosaurs is big. It was, uh, each one was built upon a base of two-inch black piping, which was then covered by a framework of steel tubes, which was then covered by steel mesh, and of course then, that magical wonder, concrete, four to five inches thick. Atop, a layer of paint. Tradition does indicate that these dinosaurs were originally gray, but fairly early on, based on newspaper reports, a green and white color scheme was introduced. The Rapid City Journal at the time reported that, quote, reincarnated in steel and concrete on ground they once trod in quest of plant food, five giants of a past age will soon look down from Hangman's Hill on some of the wonders of the present age, a 10-story building, the automobile, and the airplane, end quote. The dinosaurs, for those listening and not looking through the show notes, are cartoonish and almost sarcastic in appearance. They're fun, they're delightful, but this is definitely the 1930s image of dinosaur, very at odds with today's image of fierce, fast, bird-like beings. Sullivan at the time was said to be inspired in his design by Charles Knight's murals at the Field Museum when he was designing the dinosaurs, as well as fossils from the South Dakota area. Apparently, that same Charles Knight, a year after the park opened, was said to have described its dinosaur sculptures as, quote, awful. These included a trachodon, a brontosaurus, a stegosaurus, a tyrannosaurus, and a triceratops. 
Now, Sullivan stayed connected with Dinosaur Park actually for the next couple of decades. He and his wife, Lori Ann, ran the concession stand at Dinosaur Park until about 1965 or 1966. It was interesting to research this. Um, One source actually gave Dinosaur Park the label of, quote, the first dinosaur theme park, end quote. Um, Given our terminology here on the podcast, it's quite clear that this was not a theme park, being only some dino sculptures on a hill. I mean, you can basically call this a roadside attraction is really the best name. However, it's an interesting historical dinosaur attraction, and it informs our continuing discussion on Emmett Sullivan's dinosaurs as we wind our way towards the land of Kong in Beaver, Arkansas, via a long, twisty, trail association type of podcast road. The next thing that Emmett Sullivan did, round about 1966, was to leave Rapid City. He was reportedly looking for a potential job on a project commemorating the Trail of Tears, when he had a chance meeting with a guy called Gerald L.K. Smith and his wife, Elna L. Smith. Now, I'm not going to delve into their histories really at all because it's very outside of the scope of the podcast, but suffice to say that these two had some incredibly troublesome personal politics and a long history of using racism and religion as far-right political attack. Senator Strom Thurmond, speaking of Smith, said, quote, We do not need the support of Gerald L.K. Smith and other rabble-rousers who use race prejudice and class hatred to inflame the emotions of the people, end quote. The Smiths retired to Arkansas, and they were hunting for a project, and the project they settled on in their retirement was called Christ of the Ozarks. It ultimately was a five-story tall concrete and steel behemoth set on top of Magnetic Mountain in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Now, Eureka Springs, where we're going to spend some time, uh, was a former spa town. It was like a haven in the days before World War II when spring water was really considered the amazing cure-all. And of course, you know, if you listen to Sawbones, the podcast, you'll know that cure-alls often cure nothing. So you can see how this place probably didn't do what it was designed to. After the war, as actual remedies to diseases began to become commonplace, the popularity of places like Eureka Springs began to fall, obviously. One article I read described Eureka Springs in the modern era as a melting pot for crackery of various types, UFO enthusiasts, bikers, car restorers, and chakra healers. That definitely paints an interesting picture, and I don't know if that's true at all, but it does seem like there was a good, solid, live-and-let-live kind of attitude. So when announcements were made about this giant sculpture with a potentially problematic backing, Very little fuss actually occurred locally. One of the local preachers uh, was quoted saying, I'm not against it. I don't know that much about it. I know Smith is a very controversial gentleman. So beyond that, please don't quote me. End quote. Sullivan, of course, as we're talking about Sullivan's work, was the primary sculptor for this giant Christ figure, although mostly only for the body and arms. Apparently, the face and hands were done by his associate, a guy named Adrian Ferret, as Sullivan, who apparently was self-taught, didn't consider himself great at hands or faces. The statue as a whole is minimalistic. It's got simple lines and almost it's cartoonish in its aspect. It's kind of like a almost like a Lego figure in terms of like how blocky it is. There's plenty of facts and figures available about this sculpture online. Things like each hand is built to hold the weight of a car and the sculpture can withstand 500 mile per hour winds. 
So you can go read those if you're interested. At the time, Christ of the Ozarks was one of only four giant Jesus sculptures in the world, with the others in Rio de Janeiro, Spain, and Colombia. The sculpting took about a year, and the massive statue was dedicated in 1966. If you're interested in some additional in-depth details on this attraction, including the socio-political fallout locally, I have a link in the show notes for you that goes into great detail. Around the same time, Sullivan worked on one of the other major things that he's really known for. And this is another dinosaur. Yes, it's the wall drug dinosaur. 80 feet long, this mega sculpture has light bulbs for eyes and sits near I-90. You know there's got to be a good story if it's a giant dinosaur by the side of the road. See, we've got a guy. There's always a guy. This guy is Ted Husted a pharmacist who opened a tiny drugstore in 1931 in a town called Wall, South Dakota. Back then, it was kind of colloquially referred to as the geographical center of nowhere. His wife was a lady by the name of Dorothy Husted, and her father said that the place was, quote, just about as godforsaken as you can get, end quote. The Husteds spent their first five years in Wall barely breaking even with Husted's Drugstore, as it was called back then. People just weren't coming. One day in 1936, as Ted Husted recollected, his wife Dorothy came up with the solution. Travelers were thirsty after driving across the hot prairie. Why didn't they put up signs on the highway advertising free ice water? They used wall drug as the name on the sign since it was shorter and easier to read and easier to remember. Reportedly, this wasn't groundbreaking. Apparently, every drugstore offered free water back in the day. But their new signs on nearby U.S. 14 worked, and business boomed. By the 1950s, Ted and Dorothy's son Bill began improving the business and making it into a true attraction. He built indoor restrooms, added an art gallery and a mall and a museum, and so on and so forth. But the times they are a-changin'. In the mid-1960s, the path of the road, US-14, was shifted with the construction of I-90, the new freeway. Remember the Federal Highways Act of 1956. Wall was bypassed as an alternate route. The Husteds didn't sit back, however, to let their business fade away. They commissioned Emmett Sullivan to build a giant dinosaur sculpture to serve as a billboard, pointing guests back to Wall Drug. The timing isn't exactly clear, but it's most likely that the dinosaur would have been completed between Sullivan's project Christ of the Ozarks, which was finished in June 1966, and between the beginning of Farwell's Dinosaur Park, announced in May 1967. But it could have been before or during Christ of the Ozarks as well. I found several photos of the dinosaur dated to 1967, but none earlier than that. So I do think it's quite likely that after... I do think it's quite likely that after he was done with the Christ statue, Sullivan did move over to Wall to quickly build the large Prontosaurus-like dinosaur. The giant Apatosaurus, because of course it's technically an Apatosaurus, did its job recruiting visitors back to Wall Drug for its five-cent coffee and free ice water, and the store survived the road changes. Not only survived, but of course thrived, because I'm pretty sure you've heard of Wall Drug today. But we'll get there. Before we get there, finally, finally, we're going to talk about the meat of our story down in Beaver, Arkansas, which is about 15 minutes outside of Eureka Springs, Arkansas. 
it's time to talk about the strange theme park that was Dinosaur World or Dinosaur World by any other name. It also went by Farwell's Dinosaur Park and John Igar's Land of Kong. From here, we meet another guy. This guy is called Ola Farwell, anecdotally quite the character from the stories I've seen. Ola Farwell was a cattleman in the Eureka Springs, Arkansas area. He was described in a 1918 newspaper as a prominent young farmer and stockman. He married a lady named May Schaefer, who was a popular local school teacher. Interestingly, their marriage was kept secret until the end of May's last school session, which was very little house on the prairie to me. Reportedly, she sat on a scorpion on the wagon seat as they headed off to their honeymoon. There in rural northern Arkansas, Farwell bred free-range Hereford cattle, advertising said cattle in the local paper as early as 1919. His farm was later called White River Stock Farm. Based on newspaper accounts, he was attempting to introduce higher grades of cattle on farms in the area with the slogan, quote, it pays to breed the better kind, end quote. Here, of course, is where I take a brief sidebar to delight in the old newspaper habits. In my research, there were dozens of wonderful brief mentions of what people were up to in each newspaper, including this gem, quote, Ola Farwell is having lumber sawed on his place, end quote. Newspapers truly were early social media, and it's really fascinating to see the small, minute details of what people were up to, who was visiting, who was going where. It's really fascinating. So, Farwell. For much of the first half of the 20th century, Ola Farwell was constantly in the papers buying and selling Hereford white-faced cattle. The Farwells moved to Eureka Springs and owned a feedlot and a grocery store there. And Mae Farwell, she was a businesswoman of her own right. She worked at the grocery, and she made and supplied school lunches for the local Old Red Brick schoolhouse. And it was apparently in her name that the family residence at 218 Spring Street, Eureka Springs, was purchased. But certainly one can only do, you know, heavy labor like farming and cattle ranching for so long. In May of 1967, then, a notice appeared in the Northwest Arkansas Times describing a giant dinosaur park that was now under construction under the direction of that giant of sculptors, Emmett Sullivan. Of course, as we've established, Sullivan had been in and around Eureka Springs for a few years constructing the Christ of the Ozark statue with side trips for the Waldrug Dino. And it had to be through here that he met Ola Farwell and that the two became acquaintances or friends. Farwell, it seems, reportedly always loved children and dinosaurs. So a dinosaur-themed park directed at children seemed like a natural retirement project. He had the space, and it was something he thought was interesting. According to the first newspaper report, five whole sculptures were planned initially, placing the attraction more on the scale of Dinosaur Park in South Dakota that we've already talked about. Ultimately, of course, over a hundred different concrete sculptures occupied the 65 acres of the parklands there in northern Arkansas, just next to a body of water called Spider Creek and the large Spider Creek Lake. Once these were apparently called Cedar Creek and Dinosaur Park Lake. Though, of course, Sullivan directed and designed the dinosaurs, many local workers were said to be responsible for the actual construction, supposedly at what was called the Dinosaur Factory across the street from the park. 
These include people like Bill Sherman and Jesse Orvis Parker, said to have been responsible for constructing much of the steel framework for the dinosaurs. A guy named A.C. McBride is described as the man responsible for much of the cement and concrete work. And finally, names like Mike Evans and Bill and Gary Armour are said to have painted the dinos in realistic colors. The exact meaning of what realistic colors is, is somewhat up for debate. Legend holds that the dinosaurs were probably originally painted in dull browns, and then at some point, likely in the early 90s, were repainted in the vibrant multicolor scheme that can still be seen faded even today in 2020. And this holds up from photos that we can see in the show notes. Orvis Parker, or Jesse as he was called, is a common name that you'll see when you read people talking about the Farwell period of the park. It's said that he ran, or some even say that he owned the park under Farwell, that he was responsible for the grounds and for running the gift shop, and that his wife Mary ran the restaurant or cafe. According to a grandchild online, her cooking was excellent. Hamburgers, fries, milkshakes, and fountain sodas. Several extended family members online in comment sections about the park fondly remember their childhoods, growing up, running around, and experiencing this park. This era of the park actually really interestingly is immortalized in film. And you can see it on YouTube like right now. You can go look at it. Uh, in the intro to the 1969 horror film, It's Alive. Now, I have not actually watched the whole movie, but fortunately the dinosaurs are only in the first, like, you know, couple minutes, so you can just watch and see. And I've put a couple screen caps in the show notes. It's fascinating, really, to see the dinosaurs peeking out of the mist. One of them, you can even see the brontosaurus being um, still worked on, you can see the scaffolding still supporting it. And it's uh, really interesting to see the dinosaurs at this early stage. The park itself then, sourced from a contemporary newspaper article a few years after the park's opening, worked as follows. It operated from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. year-round at a cost of $1 per adult and 50 cents per child. Two concrete dinosaur babies hatched from eggs that served as greeters by the entrance, along with a fierce caveman figure. After you purchased your tickets from inside the restaurant, you'd then head out on the two-mile course, either by foot or by car. Speed limit, five miles per hour. The first part of the pathway was lined with rocks and fossils from all over the United States, which was reportedly a favorite hobby or collection of Farwells. At the time of the article, Farwell was reportedly in the process of building a, quote, large authentic replica of the moon to eventually house the rock collection and other exceptional exhibits, end quote. This dome-shaped structure was eventually built, although how much it looked like the moon is debatable, but it did house something called the largest Noah's Ark mural in the world. Inside the park, of course, were the attractions, which were the animals, all fake, of course, done up in concrete. The early days reportedly saw familiar animals, almost as many as dinosaurs, monkeys, deer, rabbits, a kangaroo, and a monster snake. The snake, unlike some of the other dinosaurs, was actually a grapevine that was painted yellow with orange spots and apparently still quite fearsome. A sculpture of a brown bear was said to be there with an open mouth, and apparently uh, a hive of honeybees colonized it. So basically, in hot summer days, you could see the honeybees like swarming in and out of the mouth of this concrete brown bear. I think that's fascinating. I would have loved to see that. Dinosaur Park thrills primarily, even in the early days and all the way to now, well, not to now, but we'll get there, um, 
Dinosaur Park's thrills primarily came from the long, swinging wooden bridge that went over what was then called Dinosaur Park Lake. And it ran from land to a pavilion and then back to land. It was either very high above the water in dry times or almost touching the water in wet times. From the pavilion, you could get fish food out of a dispenser to feed to the many trout stocked in the lake, or you could just go ahead and fish. Most of the dinosaurs at the time were said to be nearby to that bridge. The star back then was the 22-foot-tall T-Rex with a fish clamped in between his sharp jaws. There was a saber-toothed tiger. There was a paleosiniscus, looking like a prehistoric turtle. And the dinosaurs weren't confined to land either. Quote, climbing out of the lake is another giant dinosaur and an ominous octopus with a 32-foot tentacle spread. End quote. Up on the hillside, more dinosaurs and prehistoric animals stood. Triceratops, the club-tailed Unitarium, Stegosaurus, duck-billed Trachodon, a tusked Mastodon, and the classic, the beloved Brontosaurus. Future plans, as of the early 1970s from this article, called for, quote, an elaborate replica of Noah's Ark, end quote, up on a hill to be reached by cable cars. The early days at Dinosaur Park really seemed idyllic. Of course, change and time come for us all. By the 1970s, the interstate highway system had been under construction for 15 to 20 years at that point. Families were still far more likely to travel by car than by airplane, so family vacations, even to distant attractions like Disney that were becoming popular, still drove by numbers of roadside attractions. Farwell's Dinosaur Park continued to attract visitors. Sullivan died in November of 1973, years after Dinosaur Park opened, survived by a wife, children, and multiple grandchildren. Farwell and his Dinosaur Park, however, carried on, at least for a while. New dinosaurs were regularly added, constructed in that dinosaur factory across the street. And guests were generally happy with the park, although on occasion, apparently guests demanded their money back because, quote, the dinosaurs were fake, end quote. You can picture my eye rolling right here. For some portion of the park's life during this period, apparently even um, a local realtor named Reeves, I saw one reference, but it seemed credible that apparently a local realtor named Reeves was said to operate bumper boats on the park's lake. And that would have been interesting. But in 1980, Farwell sold the park. He, he still lived in the area, and indeed, it wasn't until almost a decade later in 1988 that Farwell passed away. But he was getting older. He saw the writing on the wall regarding his time with the park and how much effort he could and wanted to put into it. A man named Ken Childs and his wife, June Davidson, decided to purchase the park and liven it up. And they were friends with a guy called John Igar. Now, most people who are listening to this episode have no idea who John Igar is. I didn't, not until I did the research for this episode. It turns out that he was like a minor big deal back in the day. Igar is possibly best known for being Shirley Temple's first wife. They apparently made two movies together prior to their divorce. Igar then continued making films on his own, becoming strongly associated with B-movie horror flicks, movies like The Mole People and Revenge of the Creature and so on. June Davidson and Ken Childs, with the permission of their friend John, renamed the park John Igar's Land of Kong. It was a tie-in to the 1976 King Kong remake, which was popular at the time 
and which Igar obviously had a minor role in. In an interview, John Igar is quoted as saying, A friend of mine, Ken Childs, he bought this place that a farmer had built up with a bunch of dinosaurs and stuff like that. They wanted to build a King Kong and refurbish the existing dinosaurs there. They looked like cartoon characters instead of what they would actually look like. It was like Walt Disney went down there and did them. Ken contacted a guy in Texas to build this Kong for him. The place was eventually called John Igar's Land of Kong. I just let them use my name. I think it's still there. I've never seen the actual place in person, only photos. He was a friend, and I just let him use my name. I guess he figured since I was in King Kong, it had some relevance. End quote. In the late 1970s, the park already actually had a King Kong. It was a large plywood painted figure of King Kong that was stationed by the roadside to beckon guests. And as noted in several reminiscences, it apparently for several years had a cutout of Ayatollah Khomeini with a noose around his neck, which was a popular political sentiment for a few years. It wasn't the first or last time that the park uh, dabbled in showing blatant political viewpoints. Um, caveman Ronald Reagan was painted spanking caveman Tip O'Neill on another mural in the park. This was a very 80s place. But Childs and Davidson, as noted in John Igar's quote, wanted something more than plywood and murals. So they commissioned a guy down in Texas, this guy named Bert Holster, to build a King Kong sculpture in order to put in the park proper. Holster was known for building smaller fiberglass figures, things like, you know, like cows and stuff like that. But this King Kong was off the scale. Exact dimensions are not agreed upon, but he's said to be more than 35 to 45 feet tall and is designed to hold a life-size person looking like Fay Ray in one hand. He was bigger than anything Holster had ever made before. Holster apparently had to cut a hole in between the two stories of the abandoned firehouse in Clarksville, Texas, that he used as a studio in order to even accommodate the construction of the beast. King Kong was built out of fiberglass on top of a plaster and wood base that was later removed. Originally, he was apparently built with some animation. Um, reportedly, his arms beat his chest, his eyes lit up red, and his jaws moved. However, these effects reportedly very quickly broke. Kong was constructed over three years and was installed sometime in 1984. It's said that Farwell had originally had some opinions on this and that he'd originally wanted a sculpture of General Douglas MacArthur, but that the local officials nixed this idea, rather being okay with the second choice of King Kong. 1984, of course, was a busy year. In 1984, Ken Childs died, and the park was left in the hands of his wife, June Davidson. Accounts online paint some possible familial infighting as a result, and the ownership of the park after Childs and Davidson is really muddled at best, unfortunately, without me being able to physically go down to records offices, which is obviously out of the scope of this podcast. Some commenters online claim that there were potential legal issues involved with the estate post-1984. The park was said to have been the largest dinosaur park in the world, although this is a claim easily made and difficult to prove. Reportedly, sculptures were still being added, repaired, and painted. As I briefly mentioned earlier, a dome-shaped building had been constructed near the King Kong sculpture. Though originally, apparently this was intended for fossil exhibits, the, quote, world's largest Noah's Ark mural, end quote, was said to have been begun inside this dome. 
It's not clear if it was ever finished or what happened to it. By the time the park was closed and abandoned, the mural was apparently long gone, although this is getting ahead of myself just a little bit. In 1995, June Davidson changed the name of the park to Dinosaur World in order to capitalize upon the tide of a then-popular movie, Jurassic Park. The attraction retained the name Dinosaur World until its ultimate closure in 2005, and Dinosaur World is the name the park is really best known for today, although I think Land of Kong is possibly much more interesting, because, as you might know if you've looked this up, There are many places called Dinosaur World. There's only one place called Land of Kong. It's said that it was Davidson and what appear to be her siblings who ran the park after this point. Davidson was later said to have moved to California. Ted Prysock is the guy that's said to have run the general store and overseen daily operations for some time. And in fact, um, there are photos of the old mural that used to be on the front of the ticket booth and restaurant. And Ted is apparently one of the guys that was pictured on this mural. And he was the man in the middle with the trucker hat. And I'll put a link to this image on the show notes. Reportedly, this mural was a remarkable likeness. Brother Bob Prysock, who was sister to June, is also said to have served as caretaker and or possible owner. Although when the park ownership was transferred to him is unclear, but in his obituary, he is said to have been the owner of Dinosaur World. Other managers and caretakers have also been mentioned in online accounts. Danny, Nita, John. There's just been a variety of people said to have been involved with the park. But somewhere in 2004, the park was sold from Dinosaur Bob Prysock to the current owner, who also owns the Spider Creek Resort, which has cabins, fishing, etc., which his family had already owned before him for many years. So this made sort of the local property acquisition just a natural one, like you already own the property in the area. A late version of the Dinosaur World website does remain archived on the Internet Archive, which was fascinating to see. Um, There's not much there, but this is what the ad copy reads, quote, welcome to Dinosaur World. We are a 65-acre park with over 90 life-size prehistoric replicas. The park is arranged where you can walk or drive through with over two miles of road. See a four-story King Kong. Bring a picnic because we have a lake with tables close by. You can even fish if you bring your own equipment and have an Arkansas fishing license. There's a waterfall and swinging bridge also. Don't forget to stop by our gift shop on our way out. We have all kinds of unique items. Park is open from March to mid-December. We are open seven days a week in the summer. Hours are from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m., but are flexible, so you may want to call ahead just to be sure. Admission, $4. Adults, $3.50 seniors, $2.50 kids. End quote. Right before the park closed, it actually even was immortalized in film again. And it's kind of fascinating to have sort of um, the beginning of the park's life immortalized on film with the 1969 movie It's Alive. And then the end of the park's life or the end of the park's operational life. Um, It was a filming location for a brief scene in the Orlando Bloom and Kirsten Dunst vehicle Elizabethtown. And the iconic T-Rex with the fish in its mouth is even featured on the DVD cover. As I've alluded to already several times, of course, the park is closed. The park closed in 2005 for the usual reasons, which at this point, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you could probably guess. 
As a brief sidebar, I'm I'm actually surprised by how unsurprising the reasons for a theme park closure are. Very few parks close with a catastrophe. In fact, the only one I can really think of off the top of my head is Six Flags New Orleans. Most places close because of entirely prosaic and unsurprising and frankly, not that interesting reasons. Of course, insurance costs were said to be rising, and the tourism market had fallen significantly after 9-11 across the board. Places like Disney World could rebound, but a small place like Dinosaur World that was already faltering, it couldn't handle that. The hours became more irregular, the maintenance became spottier, the roads were less regularly traveled. Indeed, the changing patterns of road travel have routinely been suggested online as the ultimate long-term downfall for Dinosaur World. However, I couldn't link this to any specific road closure. It does seem possibly that US-412, some 30 miles south of Dinosaur World, may have become the preferred route for east-west travel across northern Arkansas, where previously the scenic and less direct US-62 had been preferred. And of course, Dinosaur World is a lot closer to US-62 than it is to Route 412. Regardless, if the roadside attraction is no longer easily accessible off the main road that people choose to use, well, you know what happens. There are many online who remember Dinosaur World from the good days, when it was a functioning amusement park. And of course, it is called an amusement park, but by the strict definitions of this podcast, we probably wouldn't. There's no rides, there's nothing but, you know, these crazy concrete dinosaurs. But it still was maybe a little bit more than a roadside attraction. It was a huge place. In general, people who visited it loved the place. If you look at this, if you just Google or follow any of the links that I post online about this place, people love to talk about their memories of this place as a kid. If you were a kid and visited, the place was like this wonderland. It was the stuff childhood summer dreams are made of. The dinosaurs were huge, and it didn't matter that they were, like, cartoonish. You were a kid. They're giant. There was tons of open space. Two miles worth of open space, of trees, of water. You could touch everything. It was made out of concrete. You weren't going to break anything. There weren't fences. You could do whatever you wanted. You could run. You could jump. You could play. Comments online recall the thrill of this place. And it seems it was just like simple joys, like it was the simple joy of the wooden swinging bridge and, you know, the nearby campground with the small candy store and the cheap ceramic dinosaurs that were sold in the gift shop. Just these small, like, childhood memories that you have just so, like, vivid in your memory of different places that you visited. It didn't matter that it wasn't realistic. It was still fun. There were fish in the lake, there were plywood dinosaur flats, there were off-color paintings throughout the gift shops and the bathrooms. Seeing that first dinosaur from the road as you drove to the park was the most special thrill of them all, according to former visitors. That jump and that excitement of the unreal made real. After its closure in 2005, Dinosaur World sat abandoned. Visits since then have been documented regularly online. Some folks managed to get permission to explore, others were chased away by someone who lived nearby, and others simply trespassed without interacting with anyone. All the images and stories that I've seen from this time paint a picture of a tired roadside attraction, past its prime, really only looking as good as it did because of the strength of concrete and rebar. They just couldn't decay that fast. 
One interesting exploration story from the abandoned days comes from a guy on a forum for VW enthusiasts. This guy named White Walls Johnson, he discovered a uniquely painted VW bus that was rotting away inside the front gate of the abandoned theme park. And after some hunting, he and his wife, they found the contact info for the owner and basically began making offers until one of them was accepted. And so they drove the van off to a new home elsewhere in the Ozarks, and they refurbished the the bus. And on this forum thread, they've documented, you know, what they've done to the bus to refurbish it. Um, and of course, this is way outside of the scope of my knowledge. I'm not a car person. Um but it's it's uh, it's an interesting – I'll, of course, link it in the show notes, but it's interesting to see what they did. And it was really nice that the exterior that had originally attracted them stayed the same. Um, bright yellow, hand-painted, it said, Land of Kong. And then it had just all these crazy, like, very unique dinosaur cavemen, King Kong scenes on both sides. And then down above the running boards, it said, 65 acres of dinosaurs. It's such an incredibly kitschy type of advertising from back in the day that you wouldn't see today. But it really speaks to the joyful fun that could be found in a place like Dinosaur World. Of course, we all know that dinosaurs and cavemen and King Kong, they didn't exist together in reality. That didn't make the juxtaposition any less fun. Back in Eureka Springs, the property did continue to decay. Um, Occasional maintenance, like mowing around the sculptures, was still performed, but otherwise the dinosaurs continued to flake paint, tip over, and rust. Paint faded, and today the dinosaurs were becoming much closer to their original pale visages than they had been in several decades. The gift shop was still said to contain neat shelves full of tchotchkes and other sale items years after the park closed. And it's interesting, there's there's very few pictures from this time, but there are a couple online. And the park did not suffer from graffiti during this stage, I guess because it was just so far off the beaten path. Of course, it doesn't last. It never does. Um, The single building that was the gift shop, the restaurant, the bathrooms, it caught fire in 2011 and was completely destroyed. Of course, police suspected arson. Road signs and billboards remained advertising the park for at least a decade after it closed. Being a solid 10 to 15 minutes off the highway, this had to be a frustration for tired parents who followed the billboards and not the park's website. You know, I cannot imagine being the one that had to explain that, no, Johnny, we can't get out and see the dinosaurs after all. Inside the park, decay. The photos are beautiful, but eerie. Overgrown foliage, a faded dinosaur peeking out, half the tail rusting away. Cavemen missing faces or hands or arms or bodies to just rust. Around a corner, you run headlong into another strange interpretation of a dinosaur just looming at you. Take a look at the Google Maps view. Your brain sees these shapes, and then it begins picking out the image, and bam, there's, a, there's just this decrepit dinosaur right in front of you. Sculpted in a form somewhere between realism and art and scientific fossil, the dinosaurs in abandonment mostly just appear sad and forlorn. King Kong, the massive once namesake, did stand proudly for years. He finally toppled over between March 2012 and March 2014, Whether he went down by man or nature, unclear. 
The bridge out to the pavilion over the lake lasted quite a long time as well, despite how sketchy it had to be getting without maintenance. Based on satellite imagery, both bridge and pavilion were demolished between February 2017 and March 2018. As far as the principal players in the tale, most have passed on, leaving behind a bevy of extended family members who've come together online to comment and share fond memories of growing up and visiting the park. Sculptor Emmett Sullivan died in 1970. Original owner Ola Farwell died in 1988, and his wife, Bertha May Schaefer Farwell, in 1993. Ken Childs, who was the second owner with his wife, June Davidson, died in 1984. June's brother and presumed later owner and operator, Bob Prysock, died in 2008, with his memorial ceremony held right at the three years abandoned dinosaur world. From what I can tell, June Davidson actually appears to still be alive, living the good life in California. And though Dinosaur World itself does remain closed in 2020 as I record this, the owner's other property, the Spider Creek Resort, just across the highway and down a little, is still open and doing good business for the trout fishing and nature enthusiast. An article in 2009 talking about the future of the property uh, said that it was intended for a golf course and sports bar. Here in 2020, those plans have yet to materialize, and the dinosaurs still sit and rot away. Of course, I would be negligent in my duties as the overly detailed tale teller that I am if I didn't tell you that Dinosaur World is quite close to another abandoned place that I've, of course, already discussed at length on this podcast. Yes, you could spend the entire hour and a half drive between Dinosaur World and Dogpatch USA listening solely to my similarly long history on that park. And as a very brief sidebar, if you're not following me on social media, you might have missed the news that Dogpatch has actually been foreclosed upon again and is set for public auction on March 3rd. If you have a million dollars, you too could soon purchase a theme park. Visitors in the mid-20th century apparently often included both Dogpatch and Dinosaur World in the same road trip. Today in 2020, both places are abandoned, off the beaten path, and forgotten more than not. Surprisingly, of course, the other attractions that I discussed are still kicking to this day. Ironically, despite sculptors... Ironically, despite sculptor Emmett Sullivan's original dispute with the WPA over the proper teeth of the dinosaurs at Dinosaur Park in South Dakota, today these guys have really sad-looking teeth. Um, For a long time, they even had no teeth. A 1952 article um, interviews the T-Rex, and it bemoans... The T-Rex then, of course, is sitting there, like, bemoaning to this journalist the um, tourists in the late 1940s who knocked out the dino teeth for souvenirs, which I thought was funny. It's it's a pretty cute little article. Um, In June 1997, Dinosaur Park in South Dakota was officially listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and yes, it's still operational today. Waldrug 2 is still in operation today, um, not too far from Dinosaur Park in South Dakota, Before his death in 1999, Ted Husted pointed to the free water as his greatest inspiration, demonstrating that helping people would allow a person's success, even in the middle of godforsaken nowhere. The store today is over 75,000 square feet and sees over 20,000 tourists in a single day at the height of the season. Placards and stickers and signs for Waldrug are all over the world, even in Antarctica. 
Dinosaur World and Waldrog Dino and Dinosaur Park and, you know, even places like Prehistoric Forest back in the Irish Hills of Michigan. Listener Colleen, that's a mention just for you. Dinosaur World isn't the first time that I've discussed dinosaurs on this podcast, and it will not be the last. There are so many dinosaur attractions out there. Some are still operational, but many are abandoned and defunct. What's the fascination with dinosaurs? That could be an entire podcast episode and research topic on its own, for sure. In my brief and very unresearched opinion, dinosaurs are popular because of how beloved they are, almost universally. Who doesn't love a dinosaur? A dinosaur appeals to everyone. Today, we seem to strive to absolute scientific accuracy and realism over all else. You might contrast the new dinosaurs at Magic Forest with these old dinosaurs from Land of Kong Dinosaur World. But especially half a century ago, you know, amateur sculptures made dinosaurs by roughly the cement mixer load. You didn't need precision. You didn't need much. All you needed was enthusiasm and a trowel and some basic building materials and a plucky attitude. You know, average Joe wasn't going to go out there and, like, critique your dinosaur sculpture for how scientifically accurate it was the way that someone could do of, say, you know, like if you made a sculpture of a horse or a dog. You know, like, people know what a dog and a horse look like, but a dinosaur, you just need kind of a recognizable shape. A dinosaur is just far enough removed from reality to be fun. And you can make a recognizable shape with little effort that's pleasing to kids and adults alike. Dinosaur World or John Igar's Land of Kong or Farwell's Dinosaur Park, many names for this singular place. It was begun as a vibrant roadside attraction to please the children, the real ones, as well as the child that lives inside even the crabbiest heart. It became a true star attraction for the town of Eureka Springs, close to the Missouri-Arkansas border in the northwest corner of the state near Fayetteville. Changing tourist habits and changing roadside preferences did the park in, but it does still stand. It's 2020, and these dinosaurs are still there. Those faded cement and steel dinosaurs are hard to destroy. Today, they're sentinels from a different time, forlorn and nearly forgotten by almost everyone. But of course, as you know on this podcast, nothing is lost to us as long as we remember it. Not even a tatty old trachodon next to an overgrown path where there used to be an amusement park. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Abandoned Carousel, where I told you the story behind Dinosaur World in Arkansas. In addition to the recommendations that I've already sprinkled throughout the podcast, I'd also like to recommend the book Don't Make Me Pull Over by Richard Rattay. It's a chatty and fun history of the family road trip. I found it pretty late into my research on this episode, but I really enjoyed the read. So if you liked this episode, you'd probably like Rattay's book. I'd also like to thank Elijah Wogeman for allowing me to include his childhood images of the park in operation on the show notes page. You can find his Instagram handle at wogoman underscore photography on Instagram. I'd also like to thank Kirk D for allowing me to include the use of a few of his images as well. Kirk's site is Secret Fun Blog, and it has one of the most popular posts about Dinosaur World that's out there. And it's really great. It's a nice collection of people reminiscing about the park and a great informational resource. Remember, of course, as I've mentioned, 
All of the sources I use can be found on the show notes page on my website, along with images and a rough transcript. For this episode, you can visit theabandonedcarousel.com backslash 28. And if you'd like to show your support monetarily, you can visit my new Patreon at patreon.com backslash theabandonedcarousel. If you chip in a few dollars a month, it's kind of like PBS. You get a couple, you know, um, early insight into what episode is coming next and some behind the scenes links. And I'm going to try and start including like maybe a little just a separate podcast, um, like chatty behind the podcast kind of audio episodes up there. We'll see what happens. Um, But again, that's patreon.com backslash the abandoned carousel. You know, uh, podcasts are free to listen to. You don't have to pay me. Um, If you'd rather show your support in other ways, leave me a rating and a review and just recommend the show to a friend. I've really enjoyed, you know, chatting with you. And I'm really pleased that so many people out there seem to enjoy the show as much as I do. I will be back soon with another great episode. I will see you then. Remember that nothing is ever really lost to us as long as we remember it. Remember it.